0: Presented by AT and T. Connecting changes everything.
2: As an indie musician, trying to score press coverage is a huge part of the job. And I remember being so stoked and so nervous for one of my band's first magazine photo shoots with a professional photographer, proper wardrobe on set, an actual makeup artist, and everything. I usually wear blush and eyeliner but the makeup treatment for print photography is intense. Essentially, all of your features are painted over. Lip pencil, brow pencil, eyeshadow, highlighter. It's like a very thin mask of pastes and pressed powders. You can't see the makeup artist's handiwork while they're at it, so you're just sort of left guessing how all of these colors are combining on your head. The last step is the false eyelashes. I remember this dude carefully gluing them to my eyelids. Then it was time for the big reveal. I was handed a mirror, but I couldn't see myself because he'd accidentally glued my eyes shut. (laughs) And so instead of feeling like a movie star, I felt like a fetal piglet. I'm Dessa, and this is Deeply Human. Today is about beauty and ethics and the intersection between them, stuff I've personally spent a lot of time thinking about. Why is beautification so ethically fraught? Celebrities take heat for getting Botox or lip fillers. Most of us have at some time or another been shamed for trying too hard. Makeup at the gym, that's a hot button one. Or for not trying hard enough. Your teenage self getting pestered into a haircut maybe. Plastic surgery is particularly likely to evoke moral feelings. So let's start there. We begin with a fire.
3: in the 1960s there was a big circus fire where lots and lots of people died and there was a lot of burn victims hundreds of burn victims in the city of Niterói which is across the bay from Rio de Janeiro and it was just like a big tragedy it hit every single news headline in Brazil
2: Alvaro Harin is a professor of anthropology at College of the Holy Cross in Massachusetts he's also author of The Biopolitics of Beauty which includes the story of the circus fire and a man named Dr Evil
3: He was relatively young at the time. He had just returned from getting his medical degree. He had become specialized in plastic surgery in Europe.
2: Plastic surgery as we know it developed in Europe to treat survivors of the world wars. Shrapnel wounds and trench warfare had created devastating facial injuries.
3: Plastic surgery has a deep tie to those victims of war, right? And there was this sense of, like, we need to help these people.
2: With his foreign training, Dr. Ivo Bitangi was a godsend in the wake of the fire. He treated the burn victims, many of whom were children, pro bono. He started a clinic to train other surgeons in his techniques. And Ivo became a national hero. Brazil is now a beauty capital of the world, performing sky-high numbers of plastic surgeries every year.
3: Right, so if you go to Mm. Brazil and you say Ivo Pitangui, almost everybody knows who he is, right? Really? Yeah. Wow. Very, very famous.
2: Plastic surgery started as morally unassailable. Surgeons were healers. Treating people disfigured by violence and trauma, which is not how we think about plastic surgery now.
0: Being 24, I'm always kind of scrolling through Instagram, and it was just something that I started noticing that a lot of the women I was seeing on my Explore page and who were getting a lot of likes and a lot of heart-eye emojis and a lot of praise for their looks kind of all looked the same.
2: That is Kelly
0: McGinty, who recently published her
2: master's thesis on what's called Instagram Face, a term popularized by writer Gia Tolentino in an article for The New Yorker. In short, Instagram
0: Face is... A small nose with no bumps, full lips, a sharp jawline, no double chin, high-defined cheekbones, uplifted cat-like eyes, and uplifted arched eyebrows and taut skin, like lifted and taut, like you walked through a wind tunnel and got stuck.
2: If you know the platform, you know the look. Think Bella Hadid, Chrissy Teigen, Emrata, Kylie Jenner.
0: And Kelly has collected some hard data on the phenomenon. I took the top 50 most followed models on Instagram and I did a coding process where I said, yes or no, do they have this feature that aligns with Instagram face?
2: Almost all of those top 50 female faces had the prized features of Instagram face. There was a singular aesthetic to which all of these accounts seem magnetized. And this, this isn't just a certain sort of face being made popular
0: by social media. It's about social media making new faces. So this specific look, Instagram face, is largely only attainable through cosmetic interventions like Botox, fillers, things of that sort. Some people are of course born with it, but it's really hard to tell
2: who. Botox, botulinum toxin A, is one of the most poisonous biological substances known to science. It's sometimes called the miracle poison, and when injected in really small doses, it paralyzes facial
0: muscles to smooth out wrinkles. You can use it under the tip of your nose to lift it. If you have kind of a downturned nose, you can now get a little bit of Botox injected there and. I think they call it a Tinkerbell tip lift, is what they call it in their advertising.
2: Plastic surgery clinics leverage the looks of famous faces. A bunch of them offer Kylie packages, a suite of procedures to help you look more like Kylie Jenner, who has upwards of 3 million followers on Instagram and, for the record, has publicly discussed getting lip fillers. Kelly herself wasn't immune to the appeal of all those marketing promises. All of us have probably wished we saw something different in the
0: mirror. I got lip fillers a couple of years ago under the same kind of delusion that I didn't think I was pretty. I thought having fuller lips would make me pretty and would make me happy and make people like me. Um, it didn't (laughs) and actually what ended up happening is I just found something else about myself I didn't like and wanted to fix that too. There is also a racial subtext to this
2: entire
1: conversation. It's like if colonization had a face, that's it. It would be an Instagram post from a white woman.
2: <laughs> that is writer and thinker Cecily Bowen, who goes by Bad Fat Black Girl online. She explains that our standards of beauty are
1: inherently racialized. Lighter skin, certain hair textures, as in, like, looser curls and patterns being prioritized over other ones. Thinner noses, for example, I think is one example of a physical feature that is often associated with whiteness and thus um, more desirable. So, like, no one is ever getting a nose job to make their nose fuller or bigger.
2: Our looks can affect big life outcomes.
1: So beauty isn't just a frivolous concern. When people talk about, for example, pretty privilege, that is a real thing you know there's research that shows that people who are perceived as more you know traditionally attractive are more likely to be hired for jobs are more likely to make more money as they go through their lives are more likely they have different access to different things they're less likely to be profiled at a store or treated poorly by a law enforcement officer note the transitivity here
2: Privilege comes from beauty, and beauty comes from proximity to white features. On a trip to India in my 20s, I remember seeing an ad on the side of a building. It was a woman with a zipper running down the center of her face. She was being unzipped to reveal a paler version of herself, to sell skin bleach. The cosmetic brand that made the stuff was a big name, one I probably patronized back home. In parts of Asia, the preference for fair skin predates colonial influence, but this overtness and this shamelessness of it felt very new to me. Some moral objections to cosmetic interventions start here. People have argued that straightening afro-textured hair is a concession to standards of beauty that prize whiteness. Same goes for double eyelid surgery, which is sometimes given as a gift to teenagers in South Korea. A surgery that critics say creates a more Western-looking eye. Ditto for laser procedures that turn brown eyes blue. Beauty does not stay in its lane, the cosmetic style. It pervades all of our conversations.
1: I don't think that we can detach beauty from any public-facing aspect of culture because beauty and desirability politics are always at play in terms of who we allow to be in the front. People criticize folks who get plastic surgery, right, as being like vain or, you know, shallow.
2: Vanity is probably the most common moral charge leveled against beautification. People are self-absorbed if they spend too much time or too much money on their appearance. And if they're getting surgery, then they're shouldering real health risks too. Proof positive that they care way too much about how they look. And there are risks, particularly with the procedure in vogue known as the BBL.
1: A Brazilian butt lift is essentially a procedure where fat lipo is usually done on a different area of the body. So it can be either the abdomen, the back, or even the arms or the thighs. And then that fat is essentially moved around and placed uh, in the hip and butt area. And so it gives you more of like a, a Coke bottle shape and just, you know, some some cakes back there.
2: So we are back to Brazil. Let's rejoin Dr. Ivo Pitangi, rising star in the wake of the circus fire.
3: Ivo Pitangui was very savvy. And yeah, he wrote this book, The Right to Beauty, that was incredibly well received. And people to this day use the term like plastic uh, surgery patients that I talked to in the pub hospitals, they say, yeah, we have the right to beauty because of Ivo Pitangui, right? He told us that the right to be beautiful is important and we need to offer it to everybody.
2: Evo positioned beauty as a class issue, successfully arguing that public hospitals should offer plastic surgery for cheap or even free for the Brazilian working class.
3: They see them as amazing humanitarians that are offering beauty to the poor and that are uplifting entire populations that would otherwise be downtrodden because they're not beautiful, because Brazilians believe that beauty is important.
2: It was unfair, said Ivo, that only the rich could afford his techniques. A tummy tuck, say, with a scar low enough to be hidden in a bikini bottom. Plastic surgery wasn't only a treatment for people disfigured by accidents or battle. It was also, to use his phrase, for those betrayed by nature. I'm thinking of, like, some of the conversations that you had with the recipients of surgical procedures. Like, um, a teenage girl who was interested in having breast augmentation... Felt a lot better about the green light that she got from her doctor if she had a, like a, a medicalized diagnosis
3: of small breastedness. It justified it in her eyes and particularly in the eyes of her mom that this was a condition, right? That she had an abnormality, hypotrophy of the mammary glands, which really just means you have small breasts.
2: Medicalizing a condition strengthened the argument that the state should pay for it and distanced patients from any suggestion of vanity. A formal diagnosis clearly warranted intervention. This mode of thinking essentially pathologized ugliness. It blurs the line between reconstructive surgery and cosmetic procedures, implies that you can be injured not just by shrapnel, but by your own genes.
3: I talk about it as cosmetic citizenship. They think that you, they can only belong in the Brazilian nation if they're beautiful. I had talked to a surgeon that had done surgery on his own wife and his own mother. You know, they're, they're, they're strange creatures in the sense that they really normalize it for everybody.
2: I'm trying to not have a moral reaction in my investigative conversation about moral reactions, but I'm making a face. That's intense.
1: Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured, not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value.
2: Difficult entanglements of instinct, intellect, and ethics call for a particular sort of
4: professional. What we need is a philosopher. My name is Claire Chambers, and I'm a professor of political philosophy at the University of Cambridge. Isn't beauty
2: like definitionally necessarily non-inclusive that like not everybody can be it in the same way that like the word beautiful functions the way that the word tall functions it's in comparison to a collective average
4: but then there should be no shame in not being beautiful right so if beauty was just one way of succeeding or one way of excelling amongst others then that might be fine to say that you know not everybody has to be beautiful But that's not generally how we use it. It's a value that really takes on much more weight than it should.
2: Nobody's exempt, but the onus to be beautiful weighs more heavily on some than others.
4: Typically, women and girls are expected to be beautiful to a higher sort of standard of beauty than men and boys.
2: Men, conversely, can be stigmatized for being too image conscious, for preening or wearing guy liner. I'll note here, though, that these gendered norms have not always been so. In other times and places, Beautification was more the domain of dudes. Claire recently wrote a book. It's called Intact, A Defense of the Unmodified Body. You mentioned a procedure that I'd never heard of in your book. What is a vampire facial?
4: (laughs) Basically, a vampire facial is when you have a facial which injects into your face platelets that are extracted from your own blood, hence the vampire idea. And I guess it's supposed to do something sort of magical to the texture of your skin. So there's all these kinds of really quite gruesome <laughs> procedures that are being developed all the
2: time. For beauty, Japanese women have blackened their teeth, dainos flattened their foreheads, Victorian ladies self-administered poisons to dilate their eyes. But there's no need to venture to the extremes for ethical complexities. Consider the standard-issue department store cosmetic counter. In the 1920s, when makeup really took off in the U.S., Revlon was marketing cosmetics as hope in a jar. Makeup, which is a product designed to change the way you look, is often marketed for its undetectability. People won't know you're wearing it. It'll seem natural.
4: We'll use the word natural usually to refer to things that we want to say are good.
2: It feels like my face is allowed to look like it's not wearing makeup, but it's just not allowed to look like my face.
4: Right, exactly. It's exactly it. Yeah, and if they're doing it successfully and we can't tell they're wearing makeup, right, what the rest of us looking at them think is, wow, those other women's faces naturally don't have, whatever it might be, dark circles, red patches, whatever the thing is that you're, you're concerned about. So other women just look so much better than me naturally. My face must be really bad.
2: I once did a photo shoot for a cosmetic line. A pretty awesome one, I might add, that's run independently and cruelty-free and helped to donate proceeds to a charity that supports women's literacy. And I remember receiving the first round of images intensing. They had been noticeably airbrushed. Since I was a kid, the tear troughs beneath my eyes have been dark, sort of sunken. But the woman in the picture was smooth and bright. She looked like me, but, well, prettier. Fresh-faced. Not so tired. The thing is, I do look tired. I am, in fact, tired. And I felt guilty about suggesting otherwise. I asked that the effect be dialed back, but I admit, I didn't push to remove it altogether. With daily wear makeup, most of us are cautious not to overcorrect to the point of conspicuousness. Looking totally fake would be bad. Not just undesirable, but like morally bad. Consider your own reaction. To seeing someone's selfie that's been obviously processed by a filter. Yo, that's not even her real face. It feels like a deception. But maybe makeup is just an Instagram filter you wear on the skin. And Botox is just a filter that you wear beneath it. It almost feels like
4: like cheating. So there are times when we think that what the body needs is it needs effort. right? What is virtuous is to spend effort on our bodies. And so maybe something like liposuction looks like we haven't spent enough effort or the right kind of effort.
2: It's like, if you get plastic surgery, you're not earning beauty the way that you're supposed to.
4: But I mean, it doesn't really bear sort of clear scrutiny because undergoing surgery, right, is a huge effort in many ways. We should not be creating a society where one of the huge sources of anxiety for people is that we don't look good enough, we don't look acceptable.
2: If you've watched more than like 20 minutes of television, You've probably seen beauty products marketed as self-esteem builders. They bring out our best selves, help us walk tall while striding into boardrooms in slow motion. Kelly, who researched Instagram face, isn't convinced.
0: i got to say, I'm not really either. For me, I think that feeling empowering and being empowering are two different things.
2: This equivalence of beauty
0: and power is predicated on some pretty garbagey ideas. I think it has origins to the history of how women have been placed as objects of desire for men. So for example, if we're sitting in a restaurant, we begin to picture what we look like sitting in that restaurant. We're taking on this outside gaze and imposing it on ourselves. This is what's called the male gaze. But now at the same time, it's not just men perpetuating it, it's women too. It's just thinking of yourself as a collection of parts that you can use, you know, your consumer power to buy and to change rather than thinking of yourself as a whole living person.
2: So, if you're going to go Tinkerbell for
0: Instagram... If it gives you confidence, like, okay, that's fine, but just don't claim it as this sort of empowered feminist act.
2: We're on some tricky philosophical ground here, so I'm going to baby step it. If feminism is a movement that fights for women's rights to lead self-determined lives, to expand their choices does it necessarily follow that any choice a woman makes is an exercise of feminism? Or can women make choices that even if they benefit them personally, run opposite to feminist values? Does participating in beauty culture help me as an individual, but also perpetuate lousy ideas that hamstring women generally? And then on the flip side, isn't criticizing a woman's choice, particularly as it relates to her own body, like quintessentially anti-feminist? The people you've heard here don't seem interested in judging women on their personal choices. But that doesn't mean they're not critical of the culture that incentivizes them. Growing older for women is a particular challenge. To borrow a Brazilian phrase,
3: Men age, but women decay, you know, or rot.
2: Back to Álvaro Harim, Brazil and the strange story of Dr. Ivo Pitangui.
3: He had kind of a weird rhetoric about it. He argued that it would somehow, if you gave plastic surgery to people that were criminals, he had this kind of criminological argument, it would somehow help them become better people.
0: The
2: halo effect is our propensity to assume that people with one sort of positive trait, like good looks, have all sorts of other virtues too. And Evo here seems to be suggesting that a halo can be surgically sewn in place. Brazil also conceives of plastic surgery as self-care.
3: It's sort of understood yeah. as upkeep of the body, right? People told me it's like, I mean, brushing your teeth. You know, it's a hygiene. Why wouldn't you get a facelift after you turn 50?
2: The legacy of Dr. Ivo Pitangui is complicated.
3: I remember talking mm. to a nurse at the Ivo Pitangui Institute, and she was very upset because she said, when I began working here 20 years ago, it was mostly reconstructive, it was mostly reparative. And now it's mostly aesthetic and I don't understand. And she was upset that the fact that like a job that she really was proud to be part of has become something very different.
2: It can be easy to judge the culture of invasive, painful surgeries,
3: but... I think any of us in that position would probably say yes to it. We get to say no because we have certain privileges to say no to those kind of things and to be more critical of it. So patients saw it as, it's interesting, they were so critical of what they called the dictatorship of beauty. Some people use that term at the same time that they were acquiescing to participate in it.
2: In my 20s, back from India, I wanted to reject beauty culture, feminine ideals, to go hardline ascetic. Explaining it to my mom, I told her, beauty has nothing to do with a person's character, and it's fleeting anyway. It's foolish to get too attached. Your voice is beautiful, my mom said. You don't get to keep that forever, either. So what? You shouldn't sing? As my musical career progressed, photo shoots became commonplace. And I've walked an uneasy line. It's fun to look glamorous. But it's also like a drug that's too good to use too often. And I've made these little rules, like I'm allowed to wear blush every day, but not foundation. If I post a flattering, dulled-up picture, I've got to post another, plainer one just to keep one foot on solid ground. These rules are getting harder to follow as I grow older. I asked Cecily, aka Bad Fat Black Girl, about her regimen.
1: I absolutely, like, I wear makeup. I give myself a little bit of contour. I do my eyebrows almost religiously every day so that they look more neat. I wear about 100 different hairstyles per year. I, uh, whether they're wigs, whether they're extensions, whether they're, you know, whether they're crochet, you know, so like I'm 100 percent participating.
2: Oh, man. Is there any part of you that resonates with people who would have the concern that's like, um, man, we are feeding into a capitalist system that just asks us to spend a lot of money on doing this right that like thrives off
1: a (laughs) hundred percent I just dropped five hundred dollars during the Sephora sale a hundred percent
2: part of me thinks about like um like traffic that's something that we all complain about but we all are it too and I feel like culture sometimes it's like it's very difficult to completely divorce from personal choices because it's personal choices and mass that help create culture
1: yes Everyone hates traffic, but everyone is traffic, is 100% true. But we are also talking about people still having to get where they need to go.
4: Mm. (laughs)
1: And so who built the road to only have three lanes instead of seven, which created a floor traffic that is now terrible for everyone. You get what I'm saying? Who decides what is beautiful and what is not and what people deserve who are beautiful and what people who are beautiful don't deserve? it will always come back to that for me.
2: We love beauty, but we deride vanity. Many of us think that beauty is over-indexed, but you're still not supposed to cheat that broken game. Like lunges are okay and lipo is not. Natural is better than the artificial, but it's hard to know where to draw the line between them. Participating in beauty culture only makes it worse the whole thing balanced on gross racial ideas, and yet non-participation seems kind of futile. Showing up barefaced at the office might just elicit concern from your colleagues who keep asking if you're under the weather. Here are a few lyrics from a song I wrote while ruminating on this stuff, well, with a little radio edit. I think beauty mucks us up. It's like sugar in the natural world. We never get this much. And so the appetite is bottomless. Call Maybelline Anonymous, make narcissists of all of us. We never get enough. But still, we get into the car because we've got some place to be. So you check your lashes in the mirror and you turn the engine over. Deeply Human is a BBC World Service and American public media co-production with iHeartMedia, and it's hosted by me, Dessa. Find me online at Dessa on Instagram and Dessa Darling on Twitter. Next time on Deeply Human, if sleep is so important to our health and well-being, then why do so many of us struggle to go down and stay down for a full night of rest? Join me, Dessa, in asking... Why do we suck at sleeping?